The message today, this morning, is gonna, uh, the title of it is the, the Temple is in Shambles While Your House, house is in Chandeliers. Um, of course, I don't think they had chandeliers back in the um, 450 BC, but you get what I'm <laughs> so, uh, but let's, uh, let's go ahead and um, go ahead and get started. So I, I just realized this morning, this is, this is my 10th year coming here. Um, I know I say this quite a bit, but I think I, my little girl, she just turned 10 and, um, which is crazy. Uh, so eight more years she's gone and how much that has flown by. Hasn't that flown by? Um, yeah, so yeah, so I still remember bringing her, I think it was upstairs, and she was in a little car seat, and she was sleeping. That was my first sermon here, and my wife and my little baby, so it's glorious now. Now I have three kids, and I don't get sleep, and um, that's okay, sleep's overrated. Uh, so, no, actually, uh, my youngest is four, so thankfully now they're sleeping in a little bit more, but... Uh, so I'm going to make um, an educated guess over the sermon uh, that I'm not the only one that struggles with procrastination. Um, is that okay to say that? I'm, I'm probably not. <laughs> okay. I, I, I have a feeling that there might be at least one or two of you that may struggle with that. So I, it's fascinating with procrastination because some people say, you know, you procrastinate because you're lazy. I've heard that before. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I actually think that many people might procrastinate because they're more afraid of failure. Um, they're afraid that they're going to mess it up in some capacity. It seems to be a little bit more accurate. <clears throat> Never, ne- nevertheless, I think many of us are somewhat casual about this particular issue, uh, procrastination. Um, the Bible, however, uh, doesn't look at it very favorably, um, our tendency to procrastinate. In fact, one could possibly argue that it's one of the main characteristics of some of the greatest sins in the Bible. Um, Adam, for example, uh, what does he do? He just kind of stands there. He's just kind of wandering around. He stays, he stays silent when he should speak. Um, the people of Israel wait in fear rather than invade um, when Moses tells them to, and then they have to wait another 40 years due to their basic procrastination. Uh, David stays at the top of the house way too long, way, way too long. Uh, which leads to adultery when he should have been fighting. Uh, Then there are the parables, numerous parables that Jesus gave. One in particular, which is the 10 virgins that you probably know, who wait till the last minute, and then what happens? They're cast away except for one. So we, we expect... I think it's normal for us, natural for us, in, in, that to just expect that tomorrow is just given to us, um, that it's promised to us in some way. And so we procrastinate, we ruminate, we waste time, we maybe scroll endlessly, um, neglect the people right in front of us, and not realize that they can be gone in any moment. Um, as a counselor, I've sat with many people who have lost loved ones, lost children, lost uh, husbands, spouses, uh, friends. If I only knew that this was the last day that I would have saw them, I would have said something. Speaking of children, think of the time that you had with your children. You know much better than I do how you remember holding them, coddling them, seeing them walk, seeing them speak, go to school, become teenagers, rebel or push back. Um, And then next thing you know, they're leaving college and they're gone. And what your nostalgia, which will often come and haunt you at times, will often be the most powerful tool when you think that how we could have allowed our own procrastination rob us of the very people that are no longer here. 
Why did we waste so many moments? And we've maybe have come to realize that every moment, every breath that we take, even in this time that we're sitting right here, is very precious. It's a gift. Every moment is a gift. And this chapter is going to speak to us because it speaks to a people who ran to their own house over the temple of the Lord. I feel like it's very present to our times, uh, especially with basically that's what most of us did for the last two years. (laughs) We ran to our own paneled house over the house of the Lord. So my main point this morning is to not neglect the building of the kingdom for your own paneled house. Turn to the Lord and he will be with you. That's my main point. And we'll be looking at the neglect of God's people, the neglect of the Israelites here. The number two, the consequences of their neglect. What were the consequences of that? And number three, how God's presence is stirred up when they decide to turn to him. The presence of God when the people are stirred to work. So we'll be looking at neglect, the consequences, and then the presence of God when they decide to do the work. So let's look at the first one this morning. Let's, uh, let's look at the neglect of God's people. I'll be just going by verse by verse um, in the first five, five verses, and just uh, talking about these first five verses. The first one, in the first one, says, The second year of King Darius, in the sixth month of the first day, the word of the Lord came through the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, son of Shelatiel. He was the governor of Judah at the time. And to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the great high priest, saying, so even in the first verse, what it's doing right here, it's calling attention that Haggai is just not this normal guy. He's not just some person that's just kind of, you know, a churchgoer and just wanting to say something. No, Haggai is a pretty important picture, a figure. Um, it underscores actually the divine origin of his message. Haggai was a true prophet. Things that he was about to say to them are revelatory. It's coming from God himself. The expression links the divine word to the human messenger. So it's equated right here. So what Haggai is about to say is actually the word of God. But also, if you notice, this verse is very specific about the time. Second year, six month, first day. What is God doing? He's taking time very differently than the way we tend to squander it. This is the time, this is the day, this is the hour. Now I'm about to speak to you. He's very specific. It's almost as if the Lord is keeping a tally on the day and hour of their procrastination. I've been keeping a record of all of what you're doing. It's also the second, uh, in context, this happens to be the second uh, king of, um, um, of uh, Persia at this time. There's been some time to grieve, to ponder. And because of that, they're procrastinating on the Lord's work. In context, the Israelites were living in Persia at this time. They had lost their homes. They had lost their livelihoods. They were living in a different kingdom. No empire in the ancient Near East exceeded the size of the superpower. They're actually living in a pretty powerful nation at this time. Persia controlled the area reaching from northern Africa to southern Russia and from Asia Minor all the way to India. It was a vast empire. And this Darius, it was actually the second Darius. The first Darius was with Daniel, and he was the one that said, go rebuild the temple. This Darius had seized the reins of power after overthrowing a particular king who had been an imposter trying to lay claim of his own throne. So King Darius, this new king, had just basically dealt with a civil war at the time. 
There were a lot of rebellions in various parts of the empire, and he had to consolidate his own rule. So by the time of Haggai's public ministry, the initial unrest had you know, settled down, but there were vestiges of that instability. It was still there. And Darius was able to solidify his control, his empire, and focus so that he can have this unique and lasting contribution to Persia's national life. A lot of nationalism was going on. And one thing that Persians didn't like are other competing religions, especially Israelite religion, that said, there is no God but one, and you don't have to worship the emperor. That's the context of Israel. So it wasn't like things were comfortable. Things weren't. It's pretty terrible, actually. They're living in a superpower. They're living in a very hostile nation. Even though they're allowed to live there, they weren't necessarily always looked favorably. They had to be very careful. Civil war just occurred. Highly nationalistic country at that time. They weren't. They had to worship their god. They didn't believe in worshiping the emperor. And they were pretty suspicious of any kind of instability. So that's the context of the people right there living in that time. So the building of the temple, right, seems a little out of the ordinary at this point. Persia was highly suspicious of other religions, as I just said, and given the civil war would occur, what would I do? Would it be so bad just to wait? Can we just wait just a little bit longer before we kind of just settle? <laughs> and the, verse, the second verse says, the Lord of hosts says, these people have said, and now God's about to speak, and he says, huh, these people have said, that's the context, It's not time to build the house of the Lord. So God is saying exactly, he's reflecting back what their words are. He's saying to them, the people, these people have said, it is not time to build the house of the Lord. Can you blame the people for saying that? Look at the context. It's pretty bad. And yet God repeats what they're saying and he puts it right in front of them. But also notice too, it says, thus says the Lord of hosts. So as God introduced himself, he says, I am the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, which is actually a term of reverence. It could also be translated, I am the Lord of the armies. See, already you get the context that the people are afraid. The people are hesitant. They're procrastinating. And how does God address them? He says, the Lord of hosts wants to speak to you. In other words, it's not Darius who's behind every battle of Israel. It's, it's me. From the deliverance of Egypt to the conquering of Israel, I am here. To your exile, I am here. To your discipline, I am the Lord of hosts. God is also hearing this kind of rumor within the midst. There are numerous cases where the Lord, quote, hears a rumor in the midst of Israel. Often, it's in the context of building a tower, such as Babylon, or building an idol, such as Aaron and Moses. In this context, God is hearing a rumor of the lack of building anything that the Lord of hosts is hearing or wanting them to build. He's paying attention to what they're not doing rather than to what they're doing. And so the problem here is identified in the people's kind of confident words quoted here by the Lord. Their explanation for the failure to rebuild the temple is that they're saying, well, it's not time yet. It's just not time. It's not time to go for such an undertaking. It also seems to be something that they had said repeatedly, constantly, in defense to their own inactivity. Well, I can't go to church. There's a virus. What's wrong with you? 
okay? Still, still, still corona. Look at all the numbers, okay? And so it indicates a claim that was being rehearsed, almost like just automatic. Well, of course I can't go. You know, I'm so, I don't know. I was just sick. It was not apathy, though. It wasn't selfishness that had caused their delay in this important project. They would eventually get around to restoring the temple. It was a question of timing. And whose timing was it? It was their timing. According to my timing, it's just not right. And again, in context, could you blame them? Civil war just occurred. This is not a, this is not a friendly nation. <laughs> and so the temple would indeed be rebuilt, but they're saying not now. And here's the thing, though. The timing is never tomorrow because it's not promised to you. You are not promised. I am not promised tomorrow. The timing is now. If you hear the word of God, it says in Hebrews, take heed to it. You don't know if that's going to come again. It's always today. So the kingdom of God is not a tomorrow issue. And that was their number one fallacy. They thought it was. If you're alive and you're breathing, kingdom work is now. This verse was so convicting, convincing because it's easy to make several plans, as the book of James says, tomorrow I'll do this and that, which is not a saying of wisdom. And so God introduced himself as the Lord of hosts to stop their excessive planning, and that's what they're doing. I'll get to church when the numbers are down, and this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this. No, stop with the excessive planning and get moving. Get moving right now, right now. He's the Lord of the armies. It's a military term. You're acting like you're just on the sideline, just kind of waiting for the general, and the general's right here saying, go. Verse 3 then repeats himself. Came to be that the word of the Lord came with the hand of Haggai, the prophet, saying, so now it goes from his mouth now to his hand. And he says, is it time? Is this the time for you to dwell in covered houses and the temple becomes desolate? So think about that. That's the sin. It's the time for you to dwell in, the, in a covered house while the temple becomes desolate. You're dwelling, dwelling. The house is mentioned twice, the, their house and the temple. They dwell in a covered house while the temple house is an utter wasteland. Dwelling a covered house connotates a sense of fear from an attack. So the dwelling is like they're afraid that they may be attacked. And they're also, they're kind of being comfortable. They're, quote, eating well. God is calling out the people. They're paying attention to their own safety while the temple's in ruins. Not that as if they were happy about that, as if they didn't notice, but as a call on their witness Are we not also more concerned about our own safety, our fears, our anxieties over caring for the temple itself? And thus says the heart, in the verse 5, thus says the Lord of hosts, set your heart upon the way you're going. In other words, God is now slowing them down because there's action. There is action, but all the action is in their comfortable homes. And then there's inaction here. And God is speaking to them in very kind of intimate terms, almost like meditative terms. He says, okay, this is what's going on. I want you to set your heart, set your soul. God is asking for some self-reflection, contemplation. Take a moment. Take a moment. Mary, Mary. (laughs) Martha, Martha, why are you so busy? 
Take a moment. Mary's doing something that's much better. So their busyness and busyness and busyness and their constant anxiety, God is saying, take a time to contemplate just for a second, just for a second. It's amazing how that's how anxiety runs, isn't it? How procrastination runs. We get so addicted to our thoughts as if we're doing a good thing. It's almost like our logical part of the brain hijacks and we start to think that our suspicion is actually a good thing over time. And God is saying, take a moment, is it really? Like really think about that. Is your suspicion a good thing right now while this is in desolate? How does that look to the Persian Empire? So they see God's temple, and it's totally uncared for. The walls are falling apart. Some of you are trying to build it, but it's not really come to fruition. The Persians have their temple, and they're all going to it, and they're worshiping the empire. And I guess you're kind of paying your taxes, you're paying your witnesses, and you're running in, and you're looking all scared. Is that a witness? I mean, contemplate on what you're doing. Think about how you're coming across. And so the consequences, which is my second point, the consequences of their neglect, verse 6, you have sown much, but has come to little. You eat, but there's no abundance. You drink, but no one is drunk. You wear clothes, but no one is warm. You hire yourself out for labor, but your purse has holes in them. This verse is actually, I love this verse, it's poetry, the author does this masterful job, really contrast with contrasting metaphors. The reader can also, also can hear elements of Ecclesiastes, kind of hear a little, a little bit of that. Time to build and time to drink, a time to sow, time to weep, a time to laugh. Only in this verse, it's all in the negative. Everything that people do has the opposite effect on their desired gain. The first and last part of this verse emphasizes their action. Sowing and seeking employment. In other words, they're seeking, they're doing the work, but it's coming up short. The middle verse is the fruit of their labor, eat, drink, and clothing. They have these things, they do have a little bit, but there's no fulfillment. So it could be that the people are starving, dying of thirst, suffering extreme cold. I I don't think that's actually what's going on right now. The people are still having those things. They still have a paneled house. It even says that they're doing these things, eating, drinking. and But I think it's deeper. Even though there's some record of famine at this time, as verse 11 is about to say, the people were not at the point of utter starvation as when they were in the exiles. So what is, what's Haggai saying? They have houses. It's presumed that they have these things. He's saying basically that there's an emptiness, there's a void to the fruit of their labor because the temple's in shambles. When the people of God put more effort in their own house at the temple, there's this internal void that makes the labor and the fruit of that labor seem derelict, empty, and completely barren. That's how you know you're actually a child of God, actually, is that there's a disconnect between the health of the temple and your own home. There are countless examples in the Bible where lust, seeking pleasure, seeking safety, seeking idols, or in this case, procrastinating, will never fulfill the heart of the soul. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, as St. Augustine would say. He's talking about their ultimate fulfillment, that it's not coming to fruition. It can't. So contemplate your ways. Is this really working for you? And thus says the Lord of hosts, set your heart upon your ways. He does that again. And I believe he repeats this phase in verse 7. Ponder your ways. 
is to help them ponder how what their efforts have led to, voidness. You know, the amount of people that I've seen in the emergency room and in my own practice, divorce, pornography, abuse, neglect, um, child neglect, lack of children education. I can't tell you, people coming in for suicide that never had any type of psychiatric evaluation. There's a voidness. And these, are, these aren't just, non, quote, non-believers. These are Christians. The divorce rates amongst Christians, especially in the last two years, has skyrocketed. The amount of adultery skyrocketed. There's a voidness when we just stay safe while the temple's in shambles. How's it working for you? How's it working? And I believe the repetition is here because Haggai preached to this puzzled people. They were really puzzled. Aren't we doing the right thing? It's not time yet. It's not time. I mean, they were genuinely, they were seeking the Lord's face. They actually got the benediction from the first Darius to rebuild the temple. They thought they were doing somewhat good. They expected great blessings because the pre-exilic prophets, declarations in verse 9, yet experienced this judgment. They were discouraged. They were really, really discouraged. And Haggai seeks to clarify matters that they're struggling because they have not seen fit to honor the Lord of hosts by rebuilding the temple. That's it. Their delay in building shows that they are heartily purified and obedient servants of God. It even leads Yahweh to call them these people rather than my people. God receives no honor. They do not receive the benefits of God's pleasure. And Haggai's solution is clear. They must rise and build now. In verse 6, verse 8, he says, go up to the mountain. This is God's command. Go up to the mountain, bring back some wood to build the temple. Then I will be pleased with you and I will be honored, says the Lord. It's interesting here, it says go up the command. The command is to go up the mountain. Why the mountain? Well, what about the mountain? Why not the forest? Why not your local market where wood was sold? Why, Why the mountain? The forest trees were sycamore and would have been used for larger buildings like this one. Uh, Cedar was also a popular wood, but it came from over the sea. Those are actually more expensive wood. The trees on the mountain are actually cheap trees. God is actually saying, just go to the mountain and and, and prepare. In other words, saying just, you need to just prepare right now. Prepare the work. Ramps, ladders, other devices necessary for work on the superstructure. Right now, God is asking them to get to the wood so that they can actually just prepare the project. They haven't even done that yet. I think one of the main reasons why we often procrastinate is because we think of the task as so huge, so big at hand. God's just saying, I just want you to step forward. And God's, but also notice there's something really intimate and beautiful in this verse. It says, God's pleasure, God's pleasure, I will be pleased with you. His pleasure is not separated from their action, and it's not separated from his honor. I will be pleased with you. And when God is pleased with us, God is also held in high esteem. That's not separated. God will be held in high esteem, and it's in the salvation and obedience of his people where his reputation grows. That's why he wants to rebuild. Not so that he could just like your busy work. You think that's what he really needs? Do you think he really needs you to do that because he will somehow is like dependent on it? No. He takes honor in that in this small, tiny little temple because that is where he's glorified. 
In verse 9, it says, you turn toward many things. God continues the commentary. He then talks again to them. You turn toward many things, many, many things, many things, and behold, a little has come. And when you would have caused to bring home your abundance, they did have some abundance. When you would cause to bring it home, what would God do? He would just breathe it all away. Why? They know that this is happening. Why, utters the Lord of the armies? Because my house lies desolate and every man has run to his own house. Dwell or literally sit poses its own contrast with the intense activity conveyed here by the word run. If you notice, they're running. (laughs) They're running to their home and then dwelling there. It's a mirrorism. They're in or out of their homes, sitting and moving in their homes, undertaking for the sake of those homes. That's it. They're little private lives. They're little personal benefits. That's it. And the ultimate contrast is with the neglect of the public obligations as represented by the temple, which symbolizes the traditional ties that this is where we must worship. This verse specifies the sin of the people of God in the sense that they were cowardly in their safety while neglecting the temple of God. This may be the most most modern American world verse at this point right now. I was just so convicted when I translated this verse. I like to translate my verses to slow me down, really help me chew on it. I, I confess to you, I ran to my own house these last few years over the wasteland that has become the church. The church lies in division, polarization, false doctrine, pride. We now see more rainbow flags than even American flags at this point. And the church has given full, full acceptance to those things. There's this laissez-faire attitude in the church now that I've never seen about the concerns of the poor, the widow, but especially the unborn. Roe v. Wade was just uh, destroyed, like reversed, and I, I basically saw no Christians celebrate the slaughter of that the canceling of the slaughter of children is, has been prevented. Why? Why are we on the streets celebrating? Well, we're neglected. We're more concerned about getting home to a football game than the church is completely a wasteland. That's me. Um. We fell into so many sins. We fell into alcoholism. There was sexual impurity. More Christians were addicted to pornography during that time while the church is in shambles. If there's one passage that was speaking to the American church at this point, it's this right here. It's right here. You turn to many things and behold, it has not come. Why? Because my house lies in desolate. It's just desolate. You've all just like built more porches and built it, you did, you know, I mean, you, you know, you, you, you worked more on like your own home. And that's the warning, but it's also just a sadness. It's a sadness. It's an observation to what they did. And now God says, this is, this is where he gets right in. He says, okay, because you did this and because it's coming, this is what I'm going to warn you about. Verse 10 and 11, this is why the sky has restrained its dew and the earth has restrained its soil 
I've called for a drought upon the earth. He's talking about future tense. And upon the mountain, upon the grain, upon the new wine, upon the oil, upon all which goes out from the earth, and upon man, upon beast, upon, and upon all who labor with their hands. In other words, it's all inclusive. I'm going to bring droughts everywhere. So to slow down, he, God first tells us to slow down. Secondly, he says, okay, I'm going to explain the consequences. But now he's going to say, I'm going to warn of the future. So there's some drought in the land, weren't producing crops, but the prophet is here is using another poetic metaphor that God is going to discipline them everywhere they go, upon their work, food, drink, light, vegetation, neighbor, animal, workers, everything. He's explained why they suffered in the past and what their suffering will look like. If you continue to go this route, this is how it's going to look. Make your choice. The prophet is doing what, Joe, what, 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 um, what Jonah did, too. You hear Jonah in here, but he's talking to God's people. Jonah warned Nineveh that if they don't repent, God's going to destroy them. God is saying, this is what I have done, and this is what I will do. It'll be worse if you neglect my house. In this context, he's talking to you. He's talking to the church. Well, those are my first two points. It ends on a good note. <laughs> what do the people do? It's something rare. That's my third and final point, which is the presence of God when the people are stirred to work. God actually, God, actually it says God stirs them to work. And Zerubbabel, son of Shelatiel, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the whole remnant of the people heard and obeyed the voice of the Lord and the word of Haggai the prophet, and they fear before the Lord, and God stirs them up. You see, God, Haggai's argument was, was quite powerful. Um, Judging from the full compliance it has received, it was observed. He had observed the physical suffering, mental anguish of the people. He spoke right to, right to the heart. They tried to support themselves and couldn't understand why this misfortune after misfortune had befallen them. The prophet traced the problem to their neglect of the temple building and insisted that the only escape was rebuilding this house. That's your only escape. That's our only escape. Only then could appropriate blessings flow. Only then could you see the promise of the covenant. The two main people that are responsible for the building, Zerubbabel and Joshua, along to the remnant, they all obey what God told them to do. The verse equates the voice of God with the voice of Haggai, and the people listen to the voice that listen to the Lord their God. They are woken up to their own procrastination. This isn't going to work. Time is not time. Time is not right. Time is oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. Yep. I got to work. It's time to get off of our neuroticism <laughs> and our explanation of that. And time to listen. The time is now. So it's a term of intimacy though too because it connects with God's pleasure in his people and they turn toward his face. It's also a sense of reverence, awe, and fear and standing before God. This is the result of their own convictions to their neglect. They humbly turn and seek God's face, God's face once again. It's actually a rare note in the Bible where the prophets are heard. They're listened to. They're not often listened to. Many people will mock you if you tell them to go back. Well, you know, gosh, it's dangerous. Oh my goodness, I can't go back. What's wrong with you? Don't you care? You need to go back. You're so uncompassionate. How dare you? No, you need to go back. 
Many prophets were killed, put in lion's dens, thrown back, thrown out, put in prison, even sawn in two. Haggai had this rare opportunity like Jonah where he actually changed God's, God's people. And that's why we tell people to repent. Our neglect, my neglect, these past two years, and all the justifications I gave, that was sin. It wasn't just me. It was preachers, teachers, people. God's word, when it was written, when it said, go congregate before here, Paul wrote that, the apostles wrote that, the prophets wrote that, when there was vast amount of suffering, vast amount of persecution, vast amount of heartache. Paul wrote many of his you know, epistles in prison. Do you think he gives a asterisk? Oh, in case of a pandemic, don't come. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. It was sin that we didn't congregate. And it's time to actually admit that. Not y'all, but I think whoever's watching. It was sin. It was just, it was wrong. It was wrong. And the justifications we would give ourselves. I'm not talking about, you know, masking up and being careful and all that. But, but it was sin. It was real sin. And it was, it, it's time to at least admit that. Because now that it, it, it's in shambles. When we see the American church, you want to know why it has no power? <laughs> This is in shambles while the, you know, look, look around you. Your own people don't even, they're, they're scared to go out. I meet people that have been vaccinated 15 times. And they, you know, they look at me from like 40 feet and they're like running. Dude, you know, it's okay. Okay. If that's like your witness, no wonder. That's the God you serve. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Not, not for me today. I think I'll go serve these idols. I don't blame them. Can you blame them? If you have more fear over a COVID virus than the fear of God, you're backwards. I'm not saying not be careful, but if you feared COVID more than you feared God, you just check your, check your heart. Something's wrong. That's my application. <laughs> it makes it pretty easy. And my last point, Haggai says, the Lord's messengers said to the Lord's commission message to the people saying, I am with you, utters the Lord. That's the beautiful term. Because in a sense, he's saying, okay, move on. <laughs> I can't, I'm not going to continue to ponder that. <clears throat> and so it's a, it's a term of intimacy. He warns the people, the people turn. When they turn, God promises his presence to be with his people. He doesn't bring up the past anymore. In other words, here's the thing. Shame doesn't work. I'm going to redirect it here. How do we get back? How do we get back to serving? One of the things I've also noticed about people that have addictions is that they have this kind of mentality that I call a starting over mentality. It kind of goes like this. Um, I see it all the time whenever I have some, a guy, he's, you know, I see his BAL, blood alcohol level is like 340. I could tell you exactly what his story is without even interviewing him. I mess up, okay, took a drink, did hair, whatever it is. I feel really bad. He beats himself up. And then I start beating myself up really, really terribly. Then I make all these promises. Oh my gosh, I'm going to be sober for the rest of my life. The rest of my life. I'm going to be sober. I'm never going to do it again. And he's sober for like a week, maybe two weeks, maybe a month, maybe a year, right? And then he slips up. So he takes one drink. What does he do? All the work that he did goes down the drain. Oh my gosh, I did it. And it, 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 it spirals. And he starts over. He has to do it again. That is, the, that is the mindset of an addict right there. It's a starting over mentality. 
fall, mess up, get sober, feel good about myself, do it again, everything I have to start over again. And that's why they do it over and over and over. It's like predictable, like a clock. Know exactly what's going to happen. And that's because they see sobriety as a starting over mentality. In other words, their shame is what defines them. It's their shame. Or what I don't do versus what I did. I can't tell you how often I see that. And they never get help. Or excuse me, they never get better because they have that mentality. I can't also tell you the number of Christians that are bombarded with this type of mentality. Shame is what defines them. Shame. And God actually is going to reverse their thinking. That's why I think he's saying, work and I'm going to be with you. In other words, okay, go. Because what he's doing right here is he's offering a marathon mentality. What's a marathon mentality? I like to call it a pothole mentality. The difference is is that I see an end. I see an end. And I may fall. I may even break, I don't know, (laughs) may sprain my ankle, but I could still run. I may see people that are a lot better than me, a whole lot better, and I did this before. I ran two half marathons just to, you know, just to have fun. No, but really to get me healthy again. And I, you know, people that were much, much better runners, they would fall. They would, some people would fall behind. There are going to be better, there are going to be people in your life that are going to do things so much, quote, better than you, and they're not going to finish. Do you see the, do you see the end? Yep. Okay. You slipped up. That's the end. Get up, get up right now. Go. Addicts can't think that way. They only think of, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. They, they keep like, they're, they're surrounded by their starting over mentality. No, no, you were sober for six months. Great. Okay, okay, you slipped up. Go, go. Okay, and that's why the gospel is run the race, run the race, run the race. Is because I will be with you. This is how God speaks to his people. When we turn to him, he puts an end to our shame. He gives us an end in sight, build the temple, in our case, finish the race and lean on Jesus and here's the thing, people mistake the road to be the end. And that's why they, dis- that's why they get dis- so discouraged. They see things not working out for them. They see their kids falling away. They see their country and town given to loose ethical mor- morals. They see the world going to hell, and they're just holding on by their own witness. And that's the problem. God never promised you that the road would be easy. It's going to be hard. But he does promise that there's going to be an end if we stay on that road and keep looking at Jesus. And as starting over mentality will help you in the Christian life, it won't. You may be saved. You may feel like you're doing a good thing by beating the mess out of yourself, but it's never going to help your walk with God. It's time to turn, time to build, look at your end. There will be people who are prayer warriors and you'll see them fall apart. There will be, you will fall many times. Many, many times. See your end. Get up. Get up. Through the Lord's commission message, he says that I am with you. There's not a mention of the past. There's only a mention of God's presence in the here and now. And that's the gospel. That was the gospel then. That's the gospel now. And I just pray that God would have, give us a stirring (laughs) that we run to his temple more than our own homes. Let's pray for that revival in our town, in our country, in this world. Amen.